Hey friends, the Exiles in Babylon Conference is right around the corner, April 18th through the 20th in Boise, Idaho. All the information is at theologyintheraw.com. If you do want to attend live, and I would highly recommend if you can afford it, if you have the time to come out to Boise, Idaho, attend the conference live. Space is filling up, so you want to register ASAP. We are tackling loads of really important and very controversial topics. We're talking about deconstruction and the gospel. We're, at, we're going to hear from people who have had a journey of deconstruction tell us why they did so. We're, we're going to hear from women talking about women, power, and abuse in the church. We're go, going to talk about LGBTQ people and the church. We're talking about different Christian views uh, of politics. Uh, that should be loads of fun, if not really intense. And we just added a very important pre-conference symposium on the theology and politics of Israel-Palestine. And we're going to have different viewpoints represented. Various discussions are going to be engaged in with that really important conversation. So come to Boise. You can ask questions. You can engage the speakers, engage other people who are at the conference. It is loads of fun. It really is, I would say, the highlight of my year. So again, April 18th to the 20th, Boise, Idaho. Check out all the information at theologyintheraw.com. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in Raw. My guest today is Dr. J.R. Woodward, who received his PhD from University of Manchester. He is uh, the co-founder of Missio Alliance and the national director for V3 Church Planting Movement. Okay, this episode is all about church planting and church leadership. Uh, J.R. is the author of several books, including Creating a Missional Culture, The Church as Movement, and his recent book, The Scandal of Leadership, which is a uh, really fascinating uh, book that wrestles with a lot of academic themes surrounding what church leadership should look like. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only J.R. Woodward. All right. Hey, Jr. Thanks for coming on Theology in Iran, man. I'm excited to meet you in person. We have a, a, a mutual friend and Dan White Jr. Um, so yeah. tell, tell him I said hi if you talk to him before I do. I will. I will. <laughs> he's still out in the he's still out in the Caribbean, right? Hanging out. He's <laughs> in Puerto Rico. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Doing the Caneo Center. Yeah. Yeah. I've had people. Um, he was on last time. He's on been on a couple times. I'm, I want to say a couple years ago. And I've mm -hmm. actually had listeners that have gone out there and done his, is it like a spiritual retreat or the late, I'm not sure the language he uses. Um, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I think it like healing and yeah. restoration for, especially for people working in ministry in different areas. And yeah, it's, it's really kind of a healing holistic time, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah there could be individual that, group retreats. Yeah, I think I had some pastors that went out there after hearing them on the podcast, and so um, yeah, yeah. So sounds like an awesome uh, setup. I think we need a lot more of that. Um, I want to get to. I mean, that 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 kind of is related to what we're going to talk about: ecclesiology and leadership. Um, yeah. both are uh, areas of of. I mean your academic expertise, but also your passion. I know Let, let's go back and let's just talk about the V3 movement. Uh, yeah. what is it and what, uh, what was the motivation in, in your heart in particular and why you wanted to start this thing? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, I've been a church planter for like 25 years. So my first church was at Virginia tech on the East coast. And then my next few plants were in the Los Angeles area. Uh, I lived kind of in East Hollywood. And, and so I've, 
I, I became a Christian and a church plant, and I think church planting is always something that I just thought was a natural thing to do <laughs> to see <laughs> the kingdom continue to grow and expand. And uh, and so uh, I, I was looking to potentially go up to San Francisco and plant, but then I was I had some hesitation and. So kind of the discern that I went up there for a couple of weeks and I met with like 10 different planters from people who've been there three months to 10 years from the smallest to the, one of the largest in the city. And the last guy I talked to, uh, I, I don't even remember his name, to be honest, but he, he was a guy who uh, connected with Dallas Willard pretty early after Willard wrote like the spirit of the disciplines or something. And, and Willard said to him, like, I know like this spiritual formation things works for me individually, but maybe you can see how it works for your whole congregation. So this guy was kind of early on in that spiritual formation thing. And so when I met with him, like he, he just kind of asked me questions the whole time instead of me asking him. And, uh, and, uh, by the end he goes, you know, when you talked about this, your face really lit up or he kind of just gave that type of feedback. And then he shared this story about uh, St. Francis, which I've tried to find if it's valid or not, but I'm not quite sure if it is. <laughs> could be true, could not be. Um, and uh, But apparently St. Francis was trying to discern his future, whether he should be an itinerant preacher or go and uh, uh, or, or just kind of stay in one place. And so he went to his trusted friends and asked them to discern on his behalf. And so they prayed, came back and said, we think you should be an itinerant preacher. He says, thanks be to God. And that's what he did. And so... That that story kind of uh, was one of the ways that God was speaking to me. It's like I I don't really want you to make this next decision. Like I want you to go and find trusted friends and let them decide what your next thing is to be. So I kind of wrestled through that for a while. I wasn't that comfortable with it, but then I thought, okay, like who would I have it? And I I thought of about seven people with at least one contrarian thinker by the name of David Fitch, I figured if they all agreed, I could take it as from God. <laughs> if they didn't, I would go back and, uh, you know, take all that counsel into consideration. But, uh, and uh, so I said, I can stay in LA and continue to plant, go to San Francisco and plant, uh, give myself over to helping church planners, or maybe there's another option. And uh, through a long process, they, they all kind of discern, we, we think you should help, uh, you know, train church planners. Long story short, uh, it was probably within a couple of weeks, I, I get a call from the Virginia Baptists who were looking for someone to head up their church planning. So it's like a 200-year organization, but they were really just starting like a little bit of a new thing, wanting somebody to do it, uh, give their full-time attention to it. And so they really just gave me a whiteboard, do what you need to do. Here's, here's some resources and build a team. And that's uh, that was kind of the beginning of V3. And I... You know, every every kind of movement, there's kind of this acronym that called CARTS uh, does things like coaching, assessment, recruiting, training, and supporting. And uh, so I had to really decide which of these do I start with. And I felt like coaching and training were the two things that you could really build a sense of uh, maybe a, a community and dynamic there. And I, I was, uh, this was back in uh, about 11 years ago. And at that time, I would say church planning boot camps was the most popular way that church planters got trained. Yeah. Five days, seven days, you know, we'll yeah. just give it all to you as if you're like, you're going to know how to plan a church <laughs> after that amount of time. And so I just felt like, man, I, I feel like we need a, a couple of years. So like we did these nine year training week to week, uh, coach with planters uh, in a group setting 
And, uh, you know, we, we, and it was like, yeah, six months later, I uh, brought Dan on, uh, started to build a, a team. We developed it together and yeah, and started it off. And so that's how uh, a little bit of the origins of V3. What is, uh, it's about 10 years old. Is that right? Yeah. Or, okay. What, what, yeah. Is, what are some of the, I guess, the main kind of ecclesiological values that go into V3? Like what would a V3 church look like? that would look different than another church next door? That's great. Yeah, good question. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a lot of ways to explain that. Um, I feel like, uh, but one, one of the ways I like to maybe the more, more holistic way is like a grounded spirituality, a missional theology, and a movement ecclesiology. And I think each of these three have like some different dynamics to them. So when I think about a grounded spirituality, I'm really talking about the leader themselves. Uh, I kind of take uh, the Lord's Prayer as a, a way to kind of look at what a grounded spirituality looks like. That first part of the prayer, uh, a rooted identity, the vocational faithfulness that deals with thy kingdom come, this uh, this kind of contrast community that I think uh, when he's talking about our daily bread and debts and forgiveness, uh, I think we're, we're dealing with relationships and economics and all of that. Spiritual formation in particular, as it relates to how, how the powers try to subvert our leadership, uh, you know, the deliver us from the evil one. And then what, what I would say is the canonic leadership. And so in the very Lord's prayer, you know, I see the potential problem of leadership. It's interesting hmm. that, you know, at least tradition as on, uh, you know, uh, uh, to thine be the kingdom, the, glo- the, the, the power, what, what is that? <laughs> but, uh, thine for thine is the kingdom, yeah. the power and the glory <laughs> forever. Up, yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So, but the point is like, this comes right after lead us not into temptation or deliver us from the evil one. And so I, I think the greatest temptation is to build our own kingdoms by our own power for our own glory. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, and, and that's, it's a very big temptation for, Church planters. Uh, church planters tend to be go-getters, you know. Yeah. I, I, it, okay, so this opens up a whole other... I mean, we can't talk about ecclesiology without talking about leadership and leadership without ecclesiology. So let's just kind of tackle both yeah. of these, I guess, because I, I know this is... You wrote a, a, a pretty large uh, academic book on church leadership, which I, as a, as a fellow academic, I so appreciate it. Because I think some church leaders... Uh, this is going to gonna make sure it sounds not negative. Like... A lot of church leadership books, let me just say, maybe aren't as academic as yours. Yours is a thick book, and you're wrestling with, uh, you integrate um, Walter Wink, uh, his work, Rene Girard, William Stringfellow. We talked offline about how, dude, this guy's a hidden gem, Stringfellow. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, who was Oscar? Um, Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero. So, I mean, is this part of... I, is this part of your dissertation? Because you did a PhD yeah, yeah. in Manchester, so, right? So is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I did my PhD at the University of Manchester, and yeah, this uh, book is uh, based on that. It's a bit more than that. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the the research from that is uh, is a core element of this book, and I'm really kind of seeking to give a deeper diagnosis to the problem of domineering leadership in the church. Yeah. Just and, and I realized in order to kind of give a more meaningful remedy, uh, we have to go beyond just a psychological and sociological analysis of the problem, but maybe look at it from a theology of the powers, because they shape the social and the personal, in my opinion. But given like the current plausibility structure that most of us live, developing a theology of the powers becomes a very huge task uh, to undertake. So that's where Wink, Gerard, and Stringfellow uh, become 
some important dialogue partners. Can, can you can you sum up? I mean, this is probably impossible to do, but can you sum up as briefly as you can, kind of the gist of what you're getting at in that book? Because I found I've, I haven't read the whole thing, but as I was reading, this is fascinating. I, I've never seen a church <laughs> leadership book integrating these kinds, these thinkers in particular, but these kinds of thinkers, and also addressing the issue of. Um, well, like what you said, that there's a, there's, a, there's a spiritual warfare going on, specifically targeting leaders and encouraging them to build their own kingdoms. And and I've, I've is as obvious as that should be. I've never thought about it from that angle. So what? Yeah. What? What did? What's? How would you summarize your your passion for this <laughs> idea of of a more upside down <laughs> view of uh, leadership? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I think like I maybe some ways is kind of defining leadership to begin with. I kind of look at leader as identity, like our being. Uh, how do we develop a sense of self? our practice or our doing, in particular, how do we use power? And then our telos, kind of what we're ultimate aim, what we're becoming and where we're leading people to, which ideally is uh, life in God and the kingdom of God uh, or new creation. And so uh, if that's kind of what leadership is all about, I I would also say, uh, you know, kind of based on Maybe you're familiar with uh, James K. Smith kind of sure. desiring the kingdom yeah. and so forth. But, you know, here he talks about like, uh, like he articulates a philosophical anthropology that understands humans, not just people as thinkers shaped mm-hmm. by ideas, people as believers shaped by faith, but also and most importantly, people as lovers shaped by desires. And so I do think what's most important about us as people is our desires. And so um, Girard is is really the doctor of desire. And what Jard would say is that we don't self-generate our desire, but we mimic the desire of our models. So whoever we look up to, that's where we gain our desires. Now, you know, and, and he kind of discovers this through first through some of the great uh, novelists, uh, but then he looks through anthropology, mythology, and other. Uh, he was a historian with his kind of earned PhDs. He got six conferred PhDs as well. But, six? Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but Gerard, like, uh, so I, what what I'm kind of doing is kind of uh, trying to, in the words of kind of Wink, to name, unmask, and and so that we can engage the powers, and uh, and even kind of understanding how do we understand the powers. And when I say powers, I'm kind of talking about uh, Satan, the demonic, and the principalities and powers. And I like to distinguish those. I think that the principalities and powers were created good, are fallen, and can be redeemed. I think that Satan and the demonic are more emergent realities that have no path to redemption. And so, uh, and and again, like through a pretty detailed look at Wink and Girard, and uh, I use like Matthew Kraussman, like r- really you could say Girard kind of deconstructs Satan into this mimetic cycle, which we can talk about, whereas Kraussman uh, reconstructs Satan uh, through his study of the body of sin and, and, and the emergence of that in, in Romans 5 through 8. Uh, Crossman's over at uh, Yale, uh, the, the faith, uh, uh, yeah, a professor over there. And so, yeah, I, I'm kind of doing a lot with these concepts, but ultimately maybe Stringfellow kind of puts uh, a very practical bent on this. And he would, he would talk about the principality. So the, I'm talking about here the principalities and powers in particular, as image, institution, and ideology. And so when, when you think about image, uh, he talks about, this is probably the most common principality. He talks about like Marilyn Monroe. There's Marilyn Monroe, the person, and Marilyn Monroe, the image. 
And so the, the public image are, uh, is, a, is a principality. And so as with any idol, image seeks full devotion. And it's in conflict with us until we fully give ourselves over to it. So the principality demands that the person of the same name give up his life as a person to the service and homage of that particular image. And so when that surrender is made, the person, in fact, dies, but not physically. For that point, they're literally possessed by their own image. So in my sense, we either possess our image in God or will be possessed by our image. And I think uh, even with all of the, you know, being uh, Twitter and all, all the different things, that, that, that makes image even more of a powerful thing in our life. And then institutions is another thing that kind of, again, they, they seek ultimate allegiance. And so most of us look uh, for meaning in our life through our work, which typically takes place in some kind of institution. And according to Stringfellow, uh, the guiding moral principle of an institution, be it a university, a corporation, or a church, is really the persevere, you know, the the uh, persevering of the of, of the institution, and then it's demanded by everyone who lives within its sphere of influence uh, that they commit themselves to the service of that end, the survival of the institution. But when the institution exists, not for something greater than itself, but for its own survival, then he would say it becomes demonic, and and all of those uh, that live under its domain kind of is an invitation to bondage instead of freedom. And, and the church can is an institution in that way as well. And can then, we, yeah, but go ahead. Well, that, yeah. Sorry, you give it. Uh, Stop <laughs> me anytime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, we might have to go back and unpack principalities and powers for somebody who maybe isn't familiar. They, they've read the phrase in Ephesians and like, wait, what? What? Like, what, what are we talking about? But I, institution, this is fascinating. Are you saying or are they saying, and I guess you summarizing or, you know, agreeing yep. with that the very concept of an institution, is it, is it? It's not neutral. Like, is it? Is there some kind of intrinsic negativity, or I don't say evil might be too strong, but it's not just a, a, a an institution, including the church, in as much as it reflects institutional qualities, can have a intrinsically negative quality to it. Or, or help me understand, maybe. If- yeah, great. Yeah, thank you for that. Super good quality, and 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 probably the best place to look here is like Colossians one fifteen through twenty, and and some of the details there. But I would say that institutions were created by God, like uh, wh- whether like it's uh, legal institutions, government, uh, all of these things are to kind of bring a sense of order and uh, out of chaos, right? And so they're, they were created good. In our current state, they are fallen. <laughs> and, uh, and when they're fallen, they're open to the demonic. And, 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 there, and there is a visible and invisible reality to institutions, to all institutions. And real uh, quick, like, o- open to the demonic in, in, a, in a unique way? I mean, in a sense, everything's open. Pigs are open to the demonic, according to Mark. Yeah, Tom, yeah. Right? So, but is there, something, yeah, yeah. is there something kind of particularly attractive to the demonic realm about institutions, And be, if that makes sense? Yeah, like, well, I mean, maybe uh, I, I don't, I, you know, uh, it's a little bit more powerful in an institution than an individual. So yeah, individuals are open, but also institutions. But when it happens in an institution, there's that collective nature that seems to have a greater impact. It's a stronger force, if you will, um, I, I would say, um, because, well, let's just kind of take, I, I think we can see some evidences of how racism has affected different institutions and how that, how, how, how it, 
you know, the evil is is even more uh, hideous and overwhelming when it institu- when it's kind of embedded in an institution. Um, can you define institution just briefly? When does something cross over from be- not being an institution to being an institution, or is that I, is that I, a fuzzy line? <laughs> the, I, I think it's a very interesting question. I think it's uh, one. Because a lot of people, I, I, number one, like I, I'm not one who thinks that institution in itself isn't, again, like the principalities and powers are created good, fallen, and can be redeemed. So for me, institution isn't the problem. Probably institutionalism is the problem. Sometimes people make institution negative. I don't hold that perspective. I think in a, you could say that there's these... Uh, there's a weak sense of institution and a strong sense of institution. And I'll give you a couple examples. A weak sense of institution, and I think this would be, uh, you know, by, by theorists would say, um, I, I, I kind of mentioned this in my first book, uh, Creating a Missional Culture. But when you have two or three people doing something uh, regularly over a period of time, you have a, a weak sense of institution. That would be an institution. But then you also have something like Harvard which is a college and university that's been around for a couple hundred years or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's much more of established and formal institution, right? So that would be kind of a strong institution, this kind of three or four people meeting over a regular, you know, a regular period of time would be a weak sense of institution. And there'd be things in between that, you know, uh, obviously our government has been around for a while, so it's just kind of a strong institution. Some churches have been, you know, are, are just starting. So they're an institution, but weak. But then there's others that have been around for a couple hundred years or more. And so the, the nature of institution maybe is its longevity and, and, and maybe its uh, size and influence uh, maybe speak to the weakness and strength of an institution. So, but yeah, so I, churches can be a, a weak institution or a strong institution. Would you say uh, if, it, if, it's, if it's falling into a strong institution, are you seeing – Red, just red flags or, or, or strong, no, but- no, no, no. Like, so, and maybe the best way is that when I say institutions of principality, again, keep in mind, I'm saying these are created good, but they're okay. fallen and they can be redeemed. So institution of any type can be redeemed. Uh, and w- what I would say is it becomes demonic when it seeks its own survival um, instead of existing for something beyond itself. So even the church is to seek the kingdom first. If the church seeks its own self first, it becomes more demonic, in my opinion. Uh, just like we ourselves are seek the kingdom first, the church is to be about the kingdom of God when, in whatever place it is. The moment it becomes about itself, it, it opens itself up to the demonic. Now, every church is going to say it's about the kingdom of God. Um, I know. And, and this, is the, <laughs> the, this is the slyness of how the powers work, right? So we have to just be brutally honest with, that and as much as our conscious and much as we can be aware of why we exist. So you come into a church, they say, all right, JR, we want you to come in, evaluate our institution and make sure we're not falling prey to demonic powers. Um, you got a, a, a key to every door, uh, uh, you know, to every office. You, you can talk to anybody you want. You can, um, yeah, just let us know, evaluate us and, 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 and tell us whether we are falling prey to the powers in, in our institution. What, 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 you're lighting up. You're like, oh, I would love to do that. Uh, <laughs> like, no, what, no. what are what are some things you're what are some okay, so again, churches are any church, every church is gonna say, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, of course we're for the kingdom of God. Everything we do is for the kingdom sure. of God. Um, what are some things you would identify that would tangibly show that maybe they're 
some areas that uh, are are betraying maybe that uh, that mission. No, that's a good question. Um, I I when I kind of uh, I haven't been asked to do that, but like uh, I have done kind of just uh, health uh, assessments of churches, and and I probably look at leadership. I look at how they approach mission. I look at the culture of the congregation. And when I look at the culture, you're kind of uh, looking at also the underlying uh, assumptions that the congregation has. I, I, I think you, you could look at the artifacts that, uh, you know, uh, wh- whether it's the building, the place, the websites, w- whatever type of artifacts are there, uh, I would interview people. And I, I think through learning you you kind of learn what people are trusting and uh and uh again what their underlying assumptions are how how they're living those out um and, and again like um all of us you know individually and collectively you know we face the the spiritual warfare the for the desires of our heart right where where is our ultimate desire is it for god and his kingdom or is it for ourselves is it for something else uh, th- these are not easy things to discern, but it would it would have to take uh, a, a pretty broad analysis, and and then uh, and I and I would probably just make suggestions based on what I, you know, discovered through that analysis. Um, I, I I don't think I I go in kind of looking for a particular thing. I think it becomes evident uh, through the you know assessment. Let me ask it a different way. What, what are some common characteristics of a church that has fallen into really ah. negative uh, institutions? Yeah, I think like uh, if they're like survival oriented, like oh, we're just trying to survive. That can be a, a flag uh, the, to be concerned about. If they're like, like if they got into a building that's say, say they were and this this, how, this actually happens a lot, right? They're, they're growing, they're growing, they're growing. And then they say, we need a bigger building. So they invest, you know, let's say $10 million into a building that's still bigger than what they need at the moment. But given the trajectory of growth, they're like, well, by the time we build this building, we're going to be able to fill it, you know, whatever. And then, I don't know, you know, a pandemic hits or the pastor preaches a sermon that people don't like and um, or a, 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 a new church shows up and people kind of drift over there or there's economic downturn, you know, something interrupts that pattern of growth. So now they're in this building where it's like oh my gosh we need 300 more people to come regularly hopefully at least 10 percent of them will be giving at least five percent of their income we we to make budget we need to do that is that it would yeah and i'm sure you i mean this is not a fictitious scenario no that would no, be no. an example of a church that has gotten into survival mode it's potential right like i think it depends at that point what they're trusting in right and so if they're starting to think competitively say with the other churches or if there's this kind of undue pressure, so those can be things that can push them toward that direction. But uh, obviously, we could face challenges and test and trust God with that and and do it in a healthy way. But those would be things that could potentially push you sure. to trust yourself instead of trusting God. Um, I think there's always a choice involved there. Um, I, I think when we're overly concerned for church growth uh, or survival, or it can it can it's always going to lead to the potential, the temptation to, uh, in, a, in a sense, like to, what was the, I think the archetypical temptations of Jesus might speak to kind of the issue we're talking about here. Uh, the political temptation where Jesus, uh, the devil goes like, hey, I'll give you all these kingdoms, uh, just bow down to me. Like, 
this this is kind of the temptation what we're talking about is building our kingdom but in the way uh not in the way of god in the way of the devil there's either either it's the way of god or it's the way of the devil there is no middle course in my opinion um the the devil and uh the ways of the world are sometimes what we're taught uh <laughs> as christians to do so uh we 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 sometimes mimic the business world and and we uncritically bring it into the church world and think that somehow we're going to be immune to the problems that come along with that. I think this is one of the issues I have with current a lot of current leadership books is that there is no kind of trying to discern what is good and what is bad. Like it, we can learn from everywhere. Uh, you know, all truth is God's truth, uh, but we must kind of critically engage everything, and we need to mm-hmm. look at the underlying assumptions that that different. Uh, ways of the world kind of bring to us because there there is a way of the world and there's a, the way of Christ. Yeah. And the temptation for Christ was just to bring the kingdom, uh, not in the way that the father was wanting him to, but in the way the devil was inviting him to. And so we will always have that invitation and it will not just come knocking at our door once it will come multiple times. And the present, you know, the situation that you presented is a very keen time for that temptation to come. That doesn't mean that that church would necessarily fall to it at that time. But, but it's much more of a temptation, I would say. You mentioned something in passing that I, was int- I just want to kind of follow up on that, um, and I want to make sure I understand you correctly because it made sense. And I again, I'm trying to be really careful with my wording here. Th- um, that the, the same kind of personality that might attract somebody to church planning. I mean, you got to be, you got to be, you can't be a, a passive, non-ambitious, introverted, well, maybe you can be an, um, person, you know, like, like church planners are attract go getters. They're entrepreneurial. They want to build something, right? They're they're, yeah. they're rolling the dice. They're taking risks. Uh, they don't. They want to, in a sense. And they, I don't say this negative. This is my personality. Like yeah. they don't. They they want to be the boss, not answer to a boss. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily mm-hmm. a bad thing. Um, I've been an independent person now for over ten years, and I can't imagine. Like, I love it. I love waking up and doing what I want to do and not going to do what somebody else has told me they want me to, you know, like, um, sure, sure. And I don't, I, it could be bad. It could be terrible. You know what I mean? I don't think it's intrinsically bad. So, but, um, it, it is, have you found that the same kind of personality that attracts some, that attracts somebody to, to want a church plant also opens up maybe some unique, unique temptations to want to build their own kingdom? Because they do yeah. have this kind of drive, this entrepreneurial spirit. This, like, is that, is that is that a, is that a correlation there? And I don't want to. No, know. I, I think it's a great question. Uh, and I maybe even seen studies where you know uh, they talk about narcissism in the church and how yeah, how yeah. many pastors are it's a breeding ground for narcissism. I feel like, <laughs> but, but think about it, like like what's a successful pastor? Somebody who grows a church and, and preaches great sermons and can make people feel good and, and is it is not yeah. passive and shy and meek. Like he's on stage. Like it takes a lot to get on stage. Narcissism, right? There's just kind of this, and I, and I, not, I think not everybody likes weird. to be on stage as a narcissist. I'm not saying that, but yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, and so you know, at V3, one of the, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap in our V3 element yeah. too, but. uh you know, one of the things that we look at is the fivefold, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And, you know, I think apostolic, the apostolic gifted person is kind of likely to be a good church planner. I think any of the fivefold can plant. They'll just plant differently at different paces in different ways. Uh, 
but your maybe your typical planter today would probably be apostolic or evangelist. Uh, they, these are very outward oriented gifts that they, they they tend to have a level of you know confidence and so forth, uh, faith uh, looking forward. There's a little bit of outward orientation, which is needed. Yeah, and and I think the downside uh, is, you know, I, I I think you know apostolic evangelists tend to, to tend to be fairly confident type people, and so the difference between having confidence in God and confidence in self. Yeah. You know, Paul Paul was an uh, intelligent man. Uh, he he was a super capable builder of the church. He was an expert builder, we're told in Corinthians, but he didn't trust in himself. He he learned to trust in God. My sufficiency doesn't come in myself, but it comes from God. And and I think that becomes uh, an important element for the if you want to say like natural leader, the, the temptation of the natural leader is to live in the natural and not to trust and abide in the spirit as we as we should do. And and without the dependence on the spirit, we're going to, you know, be prone to a lot of problems. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that, that's something that's easy to say, but it's like tangibly. Are we are we doing that? It's hard to hard to identify sometimes. Are we operating in, like uh, operating in our flesh to build our own kingdom, or operating in the spirit to build God's kingdom? That can tangibly look exactly the same on paper, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. like the the fruit could look very similar. It can be super hard to discern. Uh, I, I do think that um, that there are some signs that can kind of uh, you know help us, like. Uh, again, uh, when, when I kind of get to the remedy, I kind of look at like Philippians through Girardian lens. And in particular, I'm kind of trying to understand Philippians 2, this yeah. kind of whole canonic journey that Jesus takes. What does that mean? But, you know, at the very beginning, it says, you know, consider others more important than yourself. Like that, that's a pretty simple thing to consider. <laughs> like now that does have complications when we're kind of in the the flow of life and we're thinking through our relational connections and am I considering this person first? And the complication comes too, because like, what if there's needed correction here and how, how does that put that person first and so forth? So I don't, it's not, there's always a need for discernment. And uh, I think this is why we need other people in our lives. One of the things that we really encourage at V3 is polycentric leadership as opposed to just hierarchical. Uh, so shared leadership. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. That, you know, polycentric just means poly many uh, center, centers. Uh, and so even V3, like I didn't want to do this by myself. So I invited Dan and now we have Jesse and the three of us kind of lead this together. And so sometimes I'm leading and sometimes I'm following. Um, I think that's important. Uh, one of the problems has when you're a solo leader And my first book kind of addresses I, you know, hierarchy, flat versus polycentric. And uh, I would say when you think about hierarchical, it t- leads to of a controlling leader. Uh, spiritual formation tends to be more pragmatic and individualistic because you just have one leader who's kind of an example. And mission tends to be uh, extractional, meaning uh, oftentimes uh, we're extracting people from their place of mission to come to our gathering because the gathering, because it tends to be a Sunday centric oriented place and, and how many people come to our gathering tends to be the measure of success. 
And so we're actually sometimes extracting them from their place of mission as opposed to blessing them in their space. Mm. On the other hand, you have flat, which is a reaction, which sometimes is absent of leadership. It tends to uh, lend itself to more of a fuzzy, unfocused sense of spiritual formation. And I find oftentimes uh, stagnant when it comes to mission. Polycentric is really just shared leadership. It, it models communal formation. Like we don't, we don't form just in by our individual selves. We're always kind of formed by other people. Uh, what, what do we usually say when we're when someone needs uh, uh, healing and wholeness? It happens in community. Join some type of community group. And yet, oftentimes, leaders uh, have no community. If you look yeah. at all of the fallen leaders that we've seen, they're they're very much uh, isolated selves that no longer can live under the rules that they're asking everybody else to live under. And so shared leadership by nature demonstrates and models a type of community uh, under Christ that can be mimicked by those around. And, and I think that leads to multiplication of mission because, uh, you know, in some ways, every leader has a chance to actually live on mission as well. Because if you're just a sole leader, you have to take care of so many different things within the church. You probably have a hard time being outside of the church, connecting with everyday people who don't know Christ. And and But if you have multiple leaders sharing responsibilities, we each have opportunity to be living a mission in our neighborhood, in our networks, and making a difference and being an example. And there's nothing more important than being an example when it comes to what leadership is. That's kind of what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5. Hey friends, Preston here. I just received the coolest message from a Theology in the Raw listener, and I wanted to share it with you. Take a listen to this. I'm Ashlyn, and I'm a Theology in the Raw listener. I was listening to a podcast and heard Preston talk a little bit about when you're in ministry and you're teaching scripture, the importance of biblical languages. And I felt really compelled by that. I've always been interested in biblical languages. And I tell my students all the time, like context is key. And so much of that lies within the biblical languages. And I was praying, I was like, okay, Lord, I wanna learn the biblical languages for an affordable price in an environment that's conducive to my stage of life, where I'm at and what I need. And I kid you not, the next podcast I clicked on was advertising Kairos. And it was just a perfect opportunity, checked all of my boxes of not homework heavy, very practical, based on learning, not on passing tests, very much the way that I learn. And there was an opportunity to take a class on a Friday morning in my own home online. And it's just been so practical and so effective and so helpful. Uh, and it's been really cool just how fast you begin to pick up on it because it is so practical. So if you have been wondering if you should learn the biblical languages, if that's something that you would benefit from, the answer is yes. You will always benefit from gathering more context into the scriptures that shape the entirety of our life and our belief system. And it's not as complicated as I think we can make it out to be or as daunting as we make it out to be. Uh, the way that the teachers teach and the way that the class is oriented, the way that the homework is, is it's very practical, it's very digestible, and it's little by little. It's, it's fun, you know, whenever you actually get to see progress so soon, the way that it's wired is you're not waiting months upon months upon months to grasp a language because this isn't something that you're learning to speak or write necessarily. You're reading and understanding and recognizing it, it's a lot more practical than it may come across and it's definitely worth it. You should definitely check it out. It's been a really great decision for me. 
It's so awesome when we get to bring to you the Theology in the Raw family resources that actually make a big impact in your life. And Kairos Classroom has quickly become one of those resources that I hope you'll check out by visiting www.kairosclassroom.com. And don't forget to use our special code TITR. That's kairosclassroom.com with the code TITR. With your model of shared leadership, um, communal leadership, polycentric, do, do you believe in like a first among equals? I've heard people use that phrase that that we are all equal, and yet there still might be one particular leader who's still at the end of the day, not not in a hierarchical way, but maybe more of an what would be the opposite <laughs> if he's first among yeah 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 know, no like, no. Uh, so you you bring a good question. So uh, I, I, I'll kind of give you something that like uh, I'm gonna give you a non-church example first. Uh, Switzerland has seven presidents. Seriously? Um, yeah, and they've had it for like 150 years. How did I not? I, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Switzerland, Sweden or Switzerland, but I'm pretty sure it's Switzerland. Uh, we can double check on that. But yeah, seven presidents. They have equal authority, but they have one point president. Okay. They don't get more and more votes or more uh, say, but but they do kind of kind of are the kind of point person for that year, and that rotates around. And so if you kind of think of like a polycentric leadership, if you think of the geese who fly in a V, there's the point geese, but the point geese doesn't stay there. They rotate around. Uh, so they, they kind of take that wind uh, for a little while, but then they can't endure that for so long. So somebody else rotates in. That's Or, or think about a jazz band, like uh, a jazz band where you have people that play these different instruments. They're all super great musicians. They, if they're, if they get in the groove, uh, a good jazz band will, will, you know, will, will just start kind of uh, different instruments will lead out at different times, just intuitively because they know each other. I think that's kind of like a ideal picture of how polycentric leadership works. Uh, so yeah, I would say at points you always have somebody leading uh, and somebody following, uh, but there's a collectiveness in not, not every decision has to be done by everybody. Uh, you you kind of decentralize as much as you can anyway. Uh, but when you're kind of uh, building, uh, dealing with important issues and so forth, you probably want to have uh, uh, somewhat of a, a sense of what the spirit is for everybody. Now, again, th- this, this is one of those things that makes total sense when you explain it. It looks good on paper, and I think a lot of people strive for it. Have you seen this work out in practice well? Yeah, yes and no. Like it, it uh, I would say every form of leadership has its challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that shared leadership, if leaders are not healthy, like uh, it can, it will create more rivalry when you have shared leadership. <laughs> uh, it just kind of does that. But um, at the same time, like uh, rivalry will happen in, in in a hierarchical leadership as well. So uh, I, I think the the danger of solo leadership is kind of what we see happen in the church all over the place today, right? Um, we we know that hasn't been working well. Um, I, I I think the uh, again my my book creating mission culture really takes mm-hmm. the most time in that making a case for polycentric leadership. But I, I look at it theologically, I look at it mm-hmm. scripturally, I look at it like uh, emotionally, spirit, like just through five different angles. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the fivefold as a way to kind of these five types of uh, leaders working together uh, mm-hmm. being important. But yeah, it has its challenges, no doubt. Does it, can it work? Yes. 
you know, V3, we, we, Dan and I have been leading it for a while. Jesse now is a part of it. Uh, sometimes we have people come in and out. Uh, but those who practice in, and have a mutual humility, that's what's needed. You kind of constantly need the humility. But you're constantly in community as leaders. I think it, it's, it's ideal. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not always easy, but it's, it's, a, it's a great check and balance uh, for leaders' lives. Um, and I, I think it's sorely needed today. Like we, we definitely need something other than what we have right now. In my world, at least, and I live in a weird subset of evangelicalism. When when people talk about, yeah, their evangelical experience, I'm like, I, that's just not my the world I live in. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. So, it's, so in, in yeah, my, yeah, yeah. I feel like every everybody, pretty much everybody I know in the church leadership world would all be for. To me, it's just a done deal. It's like two plus two equals four, and you shouldn't have a top-down CEO model. Like CEO leadership is like just a negative phrase, you know. Like so again, <laughs> and, and again, I mean, people can say that and, and fall into something that they say they're not doing. So I don't, I don't want to say in practice it's all perfect, but um, yeah, yeah. the idea of kind of communal, humble uh, leaders that are leaning on each other and not being isolated to me, that's just a given. It's almost like, wait, that's not the norm out there. Um, so I guess my question is, that's not the norm out there? Like, like is the, well, the top-down CEO model still a thing out there? And I, I, I know it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's pretty common. Uh, I would say senior pastor or lead pastor is maybe the more common thing now. Uh, I mean, that's, you yeah, know, I, I guess see that a lot, yeah. And, but, but, but like, yeah, not like, not when I, when I say a generally Palestinian, I, I think a lot of our planters are living, you know, seeking to live into that, maybe 60%. Uh, do that but uh and, and that's with us purposefully helping them because it is not what people have been exposed to kind of what i'm talking about like a, in a genuine shared way yeah. that that's not uh it, it's just it hasn't been modeled for us mm-hmm. as a whole joe hellerman hellerman uh yeah joe, he, yeah uh, embracing shared ministry he's got a great great book on that um i love yeah. him yeah yeah he's great I, I mentioned him a number of times in my last couple chapters oh cool yeah yeah so what what's going on in in do we have a crisis of of failing leaders in the church today? Here's I guess here's my it seems like every time time you turn around you have some scandal some something happened some or, or at the very least you know a burnout you know I think there was a survey oh gosh was it burn I don't know like where you know if it, it asked pastors if you could do something else would you and like it was it was a crazy high percentage that said. Well, yeah, <laughs> of course I would get a, I just thought, what am I going to do? I, this is how I earn a paycheck, you know? Um, and then all the scandals and, 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 and adulteries and affairs and what, or, or, or narcissism and blowing up. Is it a crisis unique to our cultural moment or, or is it simply being exposed much more than we're used to through social media and, and anybody with a social media account can kind of blow the whistle or, you know, whatever. So Mm. have we always been living in this kind of crisis or is it, we only hear the negative reports. This is the, Mm. this is something I've thought about. Like I, again, I know loads of humble, godly pastors who don't need to be on stage. They, they, they uh, truly want to serve people. And my own church is a decent sized church, two, 3000. And yeah, it's funny on paper it has a CEO model. The the pastor it's a Calvary Chapel and from what yeah. I hear their model is the senior pastor has all unilateral authority and <laughs> like like 
so my senior pastor could do whatever he wants without and he is the opposite like yeah. he he does not he 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 would give up the pulpit any day that he doesn't make you know he's like delegates everything like other people like he's the most communal almost to a mm. fault like he's, he's just like lets other yeah. even on paper he has all this power and he just says i don't want, i don't want that power that's sickening you know like yeah um, yeah 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 where am i going with this oh but he'll ne- never make the news unless he unless he has unless he has an affair right <laughs> right 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 yeah yeah right, right. and i know loads of people that like the the the, the the, the loads of just humble, godly pastors that have, you know, pastoring a church in middle of Iowa, you know, 200 person church, or whatever. No, no, not, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, you know what I'm getting at? So yeah. Are yeah, we, yeah. Question. Are, do you find that we are in a unique crisis of leadership or are we just exposed to the small percentage of bad leaders that are out there? I, I, I think maybe what, uh, I'm I'm kind of trying to say it's it's more than just about individual people that we have to kind of consider and analyze the problem that has been you know I I, I don't know if I would be I, I I couldn't give you an expert opinion on uh, the question that you asked <laughs> like yeah. are we experiencing more of it or not because you, all the nuances that you mentioned are yeah. there right it's hard this to quantify a, yeah yeah it's not a new problem it's an old problem uh, Peter was addressing it in his book. First uh, Peter five, right? <laughs> so, like, yeah. it's been people have been lording it over since the first century. Um, I, I think it's always been a perpetual problem, uh, and 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 I and I think it's potentially has the systemic elements to it uh, and spiritual elements to it. And so, I'm trying to say that all of us kind of should be more mindful of what is at work and what is seeking to subvert our leadership. Uh, because it can happen to any of us. Uh, none of us are immune to the temptations of the powers. That's really what I'm saying. And I do think that uh, there there may be some spaces today. You know, we talked about image institution. We didn't talk about ideology, which I uh, is another principality. But uh, I would say image seems to be more powerful today because social media, right? Uh, yeah. We can project and and the, the, our own image trying to for us to live to our image and versus living in our image of God is much more of a temptation today than before because of our social media presence, right? We can be uh, inauthentic selves uh, in this case, you know, in a podcast, in a tweet, in whatever, uh, you know, uh, it's easier because we're not kind of day to day with the same people where it's much easier for people to determine what is real and what is not, right? So I think we are in a time and a space where the potential for some of these things may be greater than they have been in the past, and also the awareness greater uh, of the problem. Uh, but but it, it's not just a church problem; it's a societal problem, sure. and and it's large. and And I do think that with some of the problem comes with technology, and the uh, t- technology itself, you know, has is. Is kind of works with the principalities and powers and, and strengthens them. Uh, Jacques Ellul, who I studied, was huge on technology and, and yeah. very weary of it. You know, McLuhan, uh, after studying him for a little while, you know, I'm more aware of, you know, both the positive and negatives of technology and, and the power that is much more um, maybe uh, invisible uh, to our eye and our thinking, uh, but very... Uh, very effective on us. You know, it, it has a power over us that we often don't see. And that's what makes it even more powerful. 
And so in some ways, I'm trying to, in the book, uh, you know, The Scandal of Leadership, I, I'm, I'm trying to make visible what is often less visible to most people. With the social, that, that's interesting. And, and I, I think, how can you disagree? You know, like that, that you do have this temptation. And okay, so it's not limited to church pastors and leaders, but since that's what we're talking about, you do have this temptation yeah. to build a, let me use a neutral phrase, or build, build a presence or, or be, have an influence that goes outside your local church responsibilities. Do you think that that is neutral or do you think that that should be warned against? You know, I mean, you think, you think, take someone like a Eugene Peterson and I know, you know, he, he, you know, he was really old on the, when technology started really taking off and stuff. So you can blame it maybe on his, his age or whatever. But I, th- I think, I think in principle, I think if he was alive today and in his prime, I don't, I don't think he would post his sermons like, on a podcast. I, yeah, I, probably I not. Um, but, he, like when Bono he, reached out, he didn't even know who Bono was. <laughs> it's the greatest <laughs> thing ever. You know, he's like, who? Some Irish rock star? All right, yeah, sure. I'll, I guess I, let me, let me, let me pencil you into my calendar, you know? Um, but he was so focused on his, even writing books. Like he did that primarily for his own church, I think, or working on his own. Like they, you, you get the impression, he, he never once tried to build some kind of, platform that, that can be a negative term like have some massive influence outside his church i mean his church walls now god gave him that and he absolutely had a massive he did have that yeah you yeah, get yeah. the impression that he never really cared or pursued that like would you yeah. would your advice for leaders to kind of be there or would you say no like if you have influence have influence outside and and use the gifts god's yeah. called you because it's yeah 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 I, I i think like uh peterson and what I really appreciate about his work is I think he, he, he understood how the powers work and he, his awareness of that really shaped his practice and his heart and his desire. I think there's probably in us a, a, a natural and not necessarily negative desire to influence for the good. Um, I think that would be in all of us and, and, and for that to expand as, as, as far as possible, like uh, for us, you know, we, we're trying to have movemental churches. Uh, now, what that means, that's a different than egotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it requires like, you know, the opposite. So, I mean, in a sense, uh, people like Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard, they, they didn't seek uh, glory for themselves. They humbled themselves and God glorified them in the process and, and gave them influence. And, and so uh, I, I think this is the challenge is like um, we are made to be kind of co-heirs with Christ and uh, we're justified and we will be glorified. But what we don't realize is that glory comes through humility. Uh, it's, it's the way of the cross that actually God uh, lifts up. Uh, there, there is no other thing that he lifts up. We lift up everything else. It's either us trying to lift ourselves up or God lifts up those who are humble. So when Jesus was on the cross, what we see is that humility was exalted. And and I think uh, that's what we see in the life of Eugene Peterson. That's what we see in the life of like a Dallas Willard. And and, uh, we are called to, you know, that canonic, humble and uh, obedient life. And uh, that seeks 
God and His kingdom first. And uh, and and that and 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 uh, I, I can say myself, like, I want, I would love to be influential and help anybody and everybody mm-hmm. come to know Christ, yeah. uh, to have a, a life that's worth living and imitating, and uh, however God would want to use that. But how that comes about, and uh, not seeking that for myself, but you know, it, that that's that's the, the tension part. And I think that you know, I think Dallas. Uh, for example, I, I mentioned him in my tenth chapter. I, I, I we were we had we were hosting a conference, and I was kind of we had Dallas speaking, and I was kind of the MC. Dallas, if you've kind of seen him speak or heard him speak, he, he's not like an impressive speaker. And so, meaning like uh, <laughs> what I mean by that is like uh, it, it's not like his oratory is you know fascinating yeah. to listen to and so forth. So. Anyway, he uh, I, uh, he was finished speaking. I was supposed to introduce the question and answer time. And while I'm sitting, I feel like the Spirit is saying uh, me to say something that I didn't want to say. But it, it, the Spirit kind of continued to impress on me. So I get up and I kind of pat Dallas on the back and I say, Dallas, you know, you're not a great speaker. <laughs> like everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, JR, what are you saying? This is Dallas Willard. <laughs> and like uh, gasp, you know, in the group and. And then, uh, but I go, I noticed that everybody was on the edge of their seat when they were listening, uh, just like waiting for the next word to drop. Hmm. And the whole time he's like patting me on the back as if to say, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And he kind of told us like, I purposefully uh, try, I mean, he, he purposefully kind of speaks in a more monotone voice and doesn't want to use hmm. kind of certain things to somehow pull people in, but really allow the power of the spirit to move through him. Now, uh, that's how he understood it. Uh, he never once, uh, uh, did a, uh, book proposal. It was always people asking him. On the other hand, Eugene Peterson wrote book proposals, had them refused and, and did them. I don't think there's like kind of one little message, but it's ultimately, are, are we kind of following this kinetic path and really looking at others more important and, trying to not build our sense of identity in the way that the world kind of dictates to us, because I think that's the temptation. When, when, when you think about how Paul understood the canonic journey, I, I think he explains, you know, the whole book of Philippians, by the way, is, it seems like a, a book about good models and poor models. Jesus is the ultimate model, Philippians 2. Then you have Timothy lifted up as a model of Paphrodites. You have some poor models who were enemies of the cross, and then Paul himself uh, lifts up as a model. But when he's giving his autobiography there, it, it, it's in the same uh, format as uh, as kind of what they found, like 7,000 inscriptions in Philippi, which in Bible in Philippi, the greatest commodity was honor. There was nothing more great than prestige and honor. You know, Joseph Hellerman does a great job yeah, at yeah. Uh, pointing that out. And they had uh, the way they got their honors. There was a scribed honor and there was achieved honor. Right. And the scribed honor is what they were born with. Achieved was what they achieved. And uh, and that was the order that and, and even importance, like your ascribed honor was much more powerful because it was immovable. Um, and so Paul, in addressing the Judaizers, he starts off like, hey, oh, you talk about circumcision as, a, as somehow this makes you greater than everybody else. He goes, I was circumcised the eighth day. I, I was a tribe of Benjamin. You know, he starts in with his ascribed honor and then he goes into his achieved honor. Hey, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees with the law. I was faultless as with the church. I was, uh, you know, a persecutor. All of those gained him a great sense of honor within his Jewish community at the time. Mm-hmm. And what did he say? I consider all of that garbage yeah. compared to knowing Christ. 
the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. He moved from this kind of domain of death where his, his identity was formed in a particular way that the culture kind of created. And he went to a whole different way. It was all about Christ. And I think what we're talking about, you know, Jesus, although he was God, you know, uh, did not consider that something to be grasped, did not uh, try to hold on to that, did not use that to his own advantage is another way it talks about, but emptied himself. I think he was emptying himself of, of uh, he did not gain his sense of identity the, in, in, by the dictates of the world, or you could say Satan or the devil, right? Uh, the temptations. But before the temptations, what happened? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He, he, he was secure in his identity through the father and uh, before he even started in doing any ministry. And so I, I, I think when maybe the most important thing about us as leaders is where we get our sense of identity and what our telos is, because that will dictate our practice or our use of power. Um, if our identity in any way is kind of shaped, and, and I would say in general, Christian culture tries to misshape our identity and we get it by different accolades and so forth and so on. Not, not by, you know, you are the beloved son or daughter, uh, you know, of yeah. God as, as what is foundational and, and what should ought to give us, you know, the greatest sense of joy uh, in knowing God and, and knowing Christ and uh, but his power and the suffering. Uh, but it's usually other things that that other accolades that we kind of rest our sense of identity on. I think that's what's dangerous, and I think that's what is perpetuated in the church. Oftentimes, it's something that Willard and Eugene were great examples at running away from. Yeah, that uh, I, di- I didn't know that about. Um, actually, I've heard that about Willard that he wasn't the most dynamic speaker, but I, I can only imagine being on the edge of your seat because of. The character, really, the, right. char- the character, the wisdom, a, a person yeah. who so clearly desired the presence of God more than most, you know, and and what that what that breeds in somebody to be in God's presence so vibrantly. Um, I and you want to hear from that kind of person, even if it is uh, in in. in, in without all the rhetorical flourish. I mean, especially this day and age, I feel like the more rhetorically persuasive somebody is, it's almost like the more yeah. skeptical people yeah. are. Like, what, True. What, what are you hiding? You're too good, you know? Like, <laughs> right, 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 um, right. Okay, I we were short on time here, um, and I have yeah. two very different controversial questions for you. I will throw them out and let you pick maybe one to give your thoughts on if you want. Um, first of all, we talk about church leadership. We haven't even mentioned women. And I would love your thoughts on that, not to give a theological defense. I don't even know what your views are and what women in church leadership, um, but uh, would love, yeah, any any thoughts you have on that. Or uh, we are in a uh, an election year and we are going into just, I mean, we've been living in political, or I should more specifically say partisan polarization that is wrecked havoc on the church. I mean, how many churches split, um, face all kinds of divisions and animosity during the last election season, because you had people that had all these politicized views or whatever. We're going into another one that might be even more heated. The last time this happened and not just last time, it was since the civil war, we we've had political divisions in the church, Yeah, yeah, but but, but, I mean, in my generation, it seems like from 2016 on, that's just been really, really intense, you know? Um, and I think social media plays a role there and, and, and 
just so many things going on. Um, but I look back and it's like, is, has this been a failure of leadership? Like, how have we not prepared our people to be disciples of the kingdom and not let something like a three inch mask divide the church? You know, <laughs> I, I write about this yeah. in my forthcoming book and it's like, how are we going to take on the principalities of the kingdom of darkness if we can't even if the blood of Christ isn't strong enough to unify us around a question about whether to wear a three inch mask on our face. Mm, and, and I'm not even mm. picking a side here on them. I'm just saying like yeah, churches, yeah, yeah, churches no. literally blood bought churches celebrating the risen Messiah who commands the universe and it stands at his attention that blood bought organization spirit filled couldn't hold it together over a mask. That's insane. Mm. I mean, when you really think about it, Satan is doubled over. He's like, you can't make this stuff up. This is so easy. This is easy. Like, um, we're going into another season, and I do put responsibility on leaders to prepare our people to be disciples of the kingdom of God and not let the kingdom of Babylon and all their partisans. Yeah. You could probably, I don't know, maybe I'm showing my hand a little bit too much on what I want you to address. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. I, if you have I, thoughts on, on, on either one here, uh, women or Well, politics. I would just say I affirm <laughs> women in, in every role. I, I think we have women apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers in the scripture, and we should have them today. Uh, but uh, to speak to the other one, like this divisiveness, I, I, I think is a, a super sad reality. I do think the powers are at work here, in particular through ideology. So mm. I didn't get to talk about that, but that is probably the most recognizable principality. I don't think that we realize, though, how ideology enslaves us and divides mm. us. Um, and so ideologies are these isms that take people, especially leaders, but whole groups uh, captive. So uh, there's communism, fascism, nationalism. These are maybe recognized principalities that do humanize people. It's less likely for us to recognize humanism or capitalism or rationalism or democracy as potential fallen principalities. But all ideologies are, are principalities, and they have common characteristics in that they have absolute ties themselves, and they demand unconditional loyalty mm. from the individual and society. They have their own account of sin and redemption. And so like any fallen principality, they claim ultimate allegiance. And so every developed ideology has, you know, a sense of like, uh, you know, creation, fall and redemption. Uh, and, and this is kind of the, the problem is I, I, I think oftentimes that the third temptation uh, that I talk about uh, in the, the scandal of leadership is what uh, Jacques Ellul calls the uh, uh, ideological religious temptation. And, and he kind of calls it the religious temptation and ideology because, first of all, it's uh, by, by Luke's kind of uh, uh, order. Uh, Jesus is on the temple. He's in Jerusalem. It's a spiritual place. Uh, it's the only time where the devil comes to, to Jesus with the word of God itself as a temptation. Doesn't the, you know, the scriptures say you throw yourself from the temple and the angels will catch you, right? And, uh, and so the scripture itself now is being used. So, so what is the temptation here? I think it's like when we are unknowingly shaped by an ideology, it, it shapes our very reading of the text. And, and so when we're locked into captive to an ideology, whether it's a conservative or progressive, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you see it on both sides, um, you know, the other, we demonize the other. And, and Gerard would say, 
we know that we have like uh, been captive to an ideology when we demonize the other. And, and when do we demonize the other? We can no longer talk to them. We can no longer converse. There, there is no rational discussion anymore, right? It, literally, we, we have kind of scapegoated the other. We've, we've demonized them. I think that's when we know that we're captive to an ideology, not the kingdom of God, certainly not the kingdom of God. That's not what uh, Je- uh, Jesus learned to love his enemy. Uh, if there's anything that we need to learn today is enemy love. Um, so I, I think it, and it's difficult because like, uh, you know, the issues we uh, on, on one side, it's like, you know, this is kind of the most moral thing. On the other side, this might be the most just thing. And it's kind of that that sense that overtakes us that, uh, but, but again, I would say that it, I think there, it's ideologically driven when we can no longer converse. Uh, the moment we demonize others is, is probably we're under some shape of the powers at that point. Uh, it's a good way to discern uh, if we're under the powers or not. That makes, so, so, that makes so much sense. Yeah. And, and that is, that's leadership in the secular world. You demonize the other, you, you, you know, you tear them yes. down to build yourself up. And it really has all these very secular Roman, you know, demonic, not Roman in the, as if I have something against the city of Rome, but like Roman in the first century, kind of this, this, this grasping for power and domineer, domineering the other. And, and or just wanting to be right. Right. Mm, it's like, yeah. I, it, it, this kind of desire to be right. Not, not the, not this humility, mm-hmm not this kind of holding things lightly, like, hey, I, I have a pretty strong conviction about this, but I'm open. Why don't you come at me? You know, let me, let me know what you think. Where, where is that gone? I, I think it, it absolutely ruins any witness that we have hope to have, because what did Jesus say to us? Like, it will be the, by the love that we have for one another that they, they will know that you're my disciples, that they will know that I am the one the Father sent. Our unity uh, and witness are wrapped up together. And so the devil will try to destroy that. And he's doing a great job and utilizing, you know, I, I think some political ideologies to divide the church as much as uh, at any time. Yeah, absolutely. Man, we'd love to keep unpacking that because it's, uh, I think it's going to be a huge, it is a huge already. It's been a huge issue in, in the church. Um, I just, I really want leaders to rather than responding putting out fires after they're already raging but like do some preemptive discipleship work in their congregations so that in a sense you're kind of protecting the flock against these ideologies that are that are screaming towards them that are are trying to captivate their hearts and minds to to get their allegiance they i mean these ideologies i love that the way you frame it these ideologies that are demonically infused are are, are actively trying to wrench your allegiance away from uh the risen savior toward whatever kingdom alternative kingdom is out there whether it's a republican democrat or or progressive conservative whatever um uh like there there's there's an aggression here right it's not just some neutral thing oh avoid that like people are af like there are yeah there's 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 an aggression here that i think people need to understand the the, how vigilant we need to be to protect ourselves from it but yeah because ideology is essentially i i idolatry and idolatry again is 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 the the most formidable you know sin that we can commit because it speaks to where our allegiance is and in the moment like kingdom first isn't our allegiance if it's country first 
if it's party first, if it's whatever first, yeah. uh, family first, like all of those are false sense of kingdom for, you know, yeah. kingdom first is what it means to be a Christ follower. And I, I, I think we need to re-disciple ourselves and others toward that end. You've got a great uh, tweet pinned on your profile. Yeah, all, all these different firsts. What did you say? Family first is what nepotism and and uh, people first is racism. Like a group, people group. People group. Yeah, people group. Yeah. Or in the country first is nationally. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, hey, yeah, uh, yeah. JR, I've taken enough of your time. Uh, appreciate you, man. And uh, your, your book, the, at least from what I've read and and digested, uh, Scandal Leadership is incredible. So I uh, encourage people to check that out. Thank Thanks, you so man. much for being on The Alternate Realm. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.